previously on No Man's Land. I forget if it was his hand or if it was his foot was like broken or something. He, he had injured himself like pretty badly. And after that night, he was a different person. As soon as I brought up No Man's Land, he clammed up. He was like, oh, can you turn the camera off? I'm not comfortable. Get out. He's heard about the murders. And then when he was leaving, he was like, there are some stories you just shouldn't look into. Get out of here. It comes down to this, like, this feeling, right? Do you believe that evil exists? And I don't mean, like, can people do bad things? But is there, like, this force? Right? And part of me would just like to be, no, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it doesn't add up. But when you push at some of this stuff, I don't know. So is that like, why you were uncomfortable when Mark approached you in the in the in the Well, when you started asking about that stuff and being out there, like I really feel like like when you start to look at all those stories, you start start to add all that stuff, it feels like there's some other thing going on. I you know, I've been in some weird places in the deep south and Alabama, Louisiana, places where you automatically associate with feeling weird and witchcraft and all kinds of things like that. And I think sometimes here in New Jersey we think, oh, it's all nice and light and it's populated and everybody's here. That stuff doesn't happen around here. If I wasn't working at Rutgers, honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't move out of this town. Really. Live from Highland Park High School in Highland Park, New Jersey, this is No Man's Land, an original podcast from WVHP Media. Episode 5, Caleb and Seth. Hi, my name is Will Schwartz and you are listening to No Man's Land, an in-depth investigation into a mysterious section of woods of the same name. As you might expect, the arrival of COVID-19, aka the coronavirus, has put a crimp into both our school schedule and production of this podcast. All of episode 5 was recorded before the era of social distancing, except for our final narrations. And since my co-host Mark Ramareka is no longer allowed in my basement, I will be handling them myself. In this episode, we will be exploring one of the most tragic tales in no man's land lore, the strangling of 8-year-old Seth Carter by his older brother Caleb in 1949, nicknamed the imaginary friend murder by a local newspaper, The Home News. But before we go any further, I want to bring in Mark and filmmaker John Hume via the conversation we had immediately following our interview with Professor Alex Seville of Rutgers University, an expert in no man's land lore who Mark unexpectedly ran into during our field trip to the woods in episode four. Hi. Do you hike these woods often? Huh? Do you hike these woods often? Yeah, I like to walk my dog. Do you like, you're all right with dogs? What's that? Are you all right with dogs? Oh yeah, I love dogs. She's, she's like super friendly. So. Oh, what's her name? This is Trixie. Trixie, hi Trixie. I had seen this guy walking his dog, a really cute dog. I want to pet that dog again. I love that dog. I love that dog so yeah. much. Really big, big, big dog. So I went up and asked him if he had heard about No Man's Land. He said, yeah, he's been in the area for a while. Then I started to ask him about the more paranormal elements of No Man's Land. And he seemed to know what I was talking about, like the castle murders, um, the flop heads, and that honestly took me aback because I hadn't really met other people or interviewed other people who really knew about it other than people who experienced it firsthand. You know, we were able to reach out to Alex. His full name is Professor Alex Seville. He's a professor at English at Rutgers. He lives in Highland Park. I had known him cursorily 
through musician circles. He's in a band with another friend of mine, but I didn't really know him very well. And uh, he was uncomfortable because he didn't want to be associated with a cheesy ghost hunters kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, Mark was mad that he called us amateurs. I don't know that I want to... <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm talking about. It's not necessarily the kind of thing that I think amateurs ought to be out there um, poking around in. Oh, yeah, you can ask Will. I was heated afterwards. It's like, this yeah. guy called us amateurs? You not well, you guys are, you know, I mean, 18, I think we're amateurs. That's generous. What is a professional, though? Like, is it a guy who's, like, hunted down ghosts his whole life? I, I think that you guys have both done enough of this to know how to respect people during an interview, yeah. to take care of their emotions if you're talking about something personal. You're never going to get crazier than Dave Rock. So if you can get through Dave Rock, you're a professional as well. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but we did manage to sort of assuage his fears that this was really an attempt to do something not sensationalistic. And um, so he invited us to come visit him in, in his house in Highland Park. She's, she's a rescue from a kill shelter in Texas. A kill shelter? Oh, yeah. What's a kill shelter? The culture in the South is not to spay and neuter pets, so there's a huge right. pet population so problem. Sad. There right. are a few rescue organizations that specifically go to some of these bigger shelters and pull animals out of them that they think can be adopted. And, you know, a little bundle of fur like her. I was going to say, can we turn off the music? Alexa, stop. Um, how do the podcasts work for you? It's, it's pretty interesting. I think you guys have kind of stepped in a bunch of stuff. We sat down and he got right to it. We had a whole list of questions we wanted yeah. to get through. And in like the first 10 minutes of him talking, he kind of just like ran through it all. He was just so knowledgeable about the area already. And he knew pretty much everything we knew. Yeah, that was one of the most intriguing things about it. It's like the first time through this whole thing that someone else that we encountered actually had done research on the same thing that we were doing. So it's like kind of cool to like actually have a conversation with someone who is just as knowledgeable, if not more. If not more so. That whole area had been settled for a long time, right? And if you if you remember your American history, right, the, the general line of thinking is that settlers came in and pushed the natives out of the area, right? And that the Lenny Lenape who had been here, you know, sort of got pushed out by everybody. There's some evidence that the Lenny Lenape had been avoiding that area already, and that's part of the reason why some of the early settlement came, not just the Raritan River, right, which makes sense, but that, that this was easy for people to settle coming into there because there was, you know, they weren't really encroaching on the native population. Yeah, but well, it's like when you look at this, that's the, that's the part that I get uncomfortable about. It's feeling like there's these weird connections between things. So why are you still willing to take uh, walk the dog in no man's land? I'm curious. <laughs> I can't can't not poke things, you know. I was a newspaper reporter. I asked too many questions. I I'd rather be if the bear's gonna get me. I'd rather it doesn't get me from behind. I'd rather be looking at it, <laughs> you know. Well, ideally, we don't want any of the supernatural stuff to be real because if it is real, well, that's the, Eva. That's right, but that's the but that's the thing. I don't know if that's ideal. I, 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 okay, yeah, it's for you to say that of all people. Like, I think we would like. I mean, there's several things here. There's a, there's a podcast, right? Which you want you want people to listen to that. 
the best thing that could happen would you would be to prove the existence of, of the, supernatural. the supernatural. But you don't necessarily the way to get interest in this is to be as objective as possible, so that I mean, and that's what keeps me looking at stuff like that is. As I go, well, I can't rule this other stuff out. I can't find a way to argue my way out of it. So you've come across several of the murders, right? So there's the farmer murder. There's the boy who murdered his brother while they were out there. Caleb Carter, right? Yep. He was like 11. Yeah. I mean, he took his brother out and killed him out in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. And they were supposed to be really tight. Like, they, they played together every day, right. and they loved it's each other. Some... He turned himself in immediately. Like, it wasn't like he got caught. Right. He was like, I did it. I, yeah. As the story goes, Caleb Carter was found not guilty by reason of insanity and remanded to the children's wing of the state mental hospital in Marlboro, New Jersey. Apparently, Caleb spent the rest of his life there, not due to any criminal sentence, but by choice, because he felt whatever forced him to kill his beloved brother was still inside him, and he could not trust himself in the outside world. Caleb also supposedly cut off his own tongue while hospitalized, one of the many rumors we hope to confirm or debunk during our investigation. I remember looking at the coroner's inquest, there's some stuff in Alexander. See if you can find the inquest, right? Because whenever there's a murder like that, there's like the, I mean, he didn't go on trial or anything, he just confessed, right? So it's like, I think there are notes about what he was saying. When Alex Seville mentioned the original inquest, John reached out to an old friend named Curtis Bynes, a former officer in the Piscataway Police Department, as well as a distant cousin of the Carter family, to see if he could help us obtain those investigators' notes, or maybe the original police report. He left the following message at around 3 in the morning, when I guess he knew John wouldn't answer. Hey John, what's happening man? Uh, this is Kurt. Sorry it took so long to get back to you, but I got to be honest, I ain't too comfortable with this. As you know, I'm a distant cousin of the Carters, and this just isn't something the family likes to talk about. I can tell you that it's definitely true Caleb refused to leave the insane asylums in Marlboro, and that he did cut his own tongue out while he was there. The only other thing I can personally vouch for is that, you know, uh, this neighborhood, man, if you grew up here, it was just known not to go playing out there in those woods. You heard the adults talk about it. You just, you just knew not to do it, you know. They were supposed to be haunted, you know, by little Seth and whatever it was that forced Caleb to kill him. I'm sure I went out there a couple times with friends, but... We ain't stay too long. That said, I did manage to track down the original police report. Most of it is forensic info, but uh, did include a handwritten note from the original investigator's interview. I ain't allowed to share this, the actual document with you. I can't do that. But I did take some notes, uh, which, to be honest, makes it sound a little like Caleb was already insane. I'm going to call you back. We'll call you back with the rest of this. That was about two weeks ago, and Curtis hasn't called back since. 
but in the interim, Professor Seville was able to locate the original coroner's inquest in the archives at Rutgers Alexander Library. Thankfully, the document contains some of the same investigator's notes Curtis referred to in the police report. We brought in field reporter and the voice of WVHP, Ariana Samuel, to read some of the entries that were handwritten by Detective Sam Leary of the Piscataway Police Department. Case number, redacted. Charge, murder homicide. Incident date, 8-29-1949 at 1.22 p.m. Location of offense, woods in vicinity of 443 River Road, Marywold Castle. Location of arrest, 1 River Road, Piscataway, New Jersey. Reporting officer, Detective Sam Leary, unit number 283. Assisting officer, Detective Ted Henderson, unit number 289. Victim, Seth Noah Carter, age nine, victim transported to St. Peter's Hospital, New Brunswick, New Jersey, were pronounced dead at 2.17 p.m. Probable cause of death, asphyxia due to manual strangulation. Secondary wounds include multiple contusions via blunt force trauma to head and neck area. Based on preliminary forensic analysis and initial witness statements, reporting investigators believe perpetrator to be Caleb Anthony Carter, 11, victim's older brother. Described as male, black, 11 years old, 5 feet, 79 pounds. At time of incident, wearing white t-shirt, denim overalls, work boots, and socks size 9. Reporting officer's narrative. On Monday, August 29, 1949, dispatch notified reporting investigators to respond to location of One River Road in Piscataway, New Jersey, where possible accidental death had occurred. Upon arrival, met by victim's parents, Cayman and Ruby Carter of same address and responding officer Kay Kozlowski, who was attempting to resuscitate victim. Responding officer attempted CPR for approximately nine minutes to no success before arrival of ambulance and transportation of victim to St. Peter's. According to reporting officer, the suspect had already confessed to homicide. Initial communication undertaken with parental consent confirmed confession. Updated 829-1949 at 4.34 p.m. Suspect has been taken into custody. The closest member of the Carter family that we managed to track down is Rod Dudley, class of 86 at Highland Park High School and a former basketball teammate of John's. Rod's mother was actually Caleb and Seth's younger sister, and much like Curtis Bynes, the murder is not something he likes to talk about. But after listening to the previous episode of the podcast, Rod agreed to be interviewed by our digital storytelling club. I, like I told you, John is a dear friend. This is the first time I've ever discussed this with anybody. You know, not even my, my girlfriend knows about this because it's a, a combination of embarrassment from me. Um, but I think it's more the, being afraid of my uncle who could have been possibly possessed by an evil force to cause him to kill his his own sibling, you know, and uh, I don't know, it gets me a little, you know, choking up because, you know, it's, I'm very close with my mother and this was her brother and she didn't really have a chance to see her other brother grow up. So it's something that I know how she feels about it and it makes her real sad, you know, so. You know, everybody in school used to talk about it and, you know, the, the castle and, you know, it was more just done in, in joking, and but I, it, for me, it it was more than just a joke, and it was more than just you know a legend because of it affected my family directly. 
family farm. Um, I, I was never into the farming thing. I wanted to get farthest away from that area because it was like all hard work and I didn't want to do any of that stuff, you know? But, you know, it was mostly corn and we did some potatoes. I made my, my grandfather a lot of money. He was directly feeding a lot of the local grocery stores in the area. So he, was, he did well for himself. But um, it was always spooky out there, you know? It was always, there was not a lot, it was very desolate. Um, and you know, with corn, I don't know if you've ever been, you ever been in a cornfield? You know, there's been tons of movies made about what goes on in those cornfields and the moving. So I always, Children of the Corn was one of them, yeah. And then there was another one that was pretty bad, um, was the one with the guy that had wings and stuff like that. Jeepers Creepers, man. That used to freak me out, man. As a child, I heard they were, they were playing, and um, my uncle Caleb, he just, um, he just ended up killing his, his brother. You know, they thought it was, you know, it was some kind of schizophrenia or whatever they diagnosed it at, but I think my grandmother just felt like that something possessed her child. I know they're very, very superstitious people. They're very religious in the Catholic faith, but I also know that they do believe in ghosts and spirits. So I do believe that in her mind, she felt that something out there in those fields, in those woods, was taking over her, her child's soul. I think for a child that age to do something that violent and that, um, that evil to his own brother, I don't think he would have done that unless there was something inside of him. According to suspect, he and his brother made a strange discovery in woods southeast of nearby Marywold Castle. Described as weird tower of rocks, which Caleb believed to be some kind of religious altar or shrine. Also described as covered with moss, hundreds of years old. Suspect warned his brother to leave the tower alone, but Seth could not resist touching it and unintentionally knocked it over. Due to elaborate arrangement of stones, all attempts to rebuild tower into its original form ended in failure. A short time later, boys apparently felt a presence in the forest. According to Caleb, this so-called presence seemed friendly at first and would make wind whisper in just such a way or draw strange symbols in dirt with an invisible finger. Apparently, brothers believed presence was trying to teach them its name. Responding investigator note, several such symbols were found. Photos will be attached as soon as developed. Initial observation suggests drawn by a child's finger. Consider possibility that presence is Caleb or both boys' imaginary friend. Earlier today, Caleb was finally able to spell out the sounds they were hearing in the forest. But as soon as he spoke the name aloud, he felt something cold, evil, and very, very old crawl into his mind and force him to smash Seth's head with the rock, then choke him to death. Reporting investigators were taken to SOC by Caleb and his father, approximately three-fourths mile from the farm. Preliminary forensic investigation revealed pile of rocks in line with suspect's description, including two covered with blood. First, bloodstains fresh appeared to belong to victim. Second stain larger, but much older and faded and appears to be unrelated to this case. 
both have been collected. See Appendix C, Evidentiary Notes. Suspect inconsolable and was taken into PPD custody where he will remain until transport to Children's Wings State Hospital, Marlboro, New Jersey, in preparation for psychological evaluation. Signed, Detective Sam Leary, reporting investigator. Yeah, I heard that story too. I heard it was like almost like some kind of like an old, you know, I don't know if it was goes back to Indian days or that once the rocks were moved, it triggered some kind of a, of a, um, I don't know, that, that, that pile of rocks needed to be left where it was and wasn't. And I don't really know more about it, but I know that my uncle um, thought that he had something that he couldn't control in, within him. And that's why he spent the rest of his life in, the, uh, in Marlboro. In September of 1949, Caleb Carter passed through the gates of one of New Jersey's most infamous insane asylums, and he would never leave them. The only problem from our podcast point of view is that the Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital was closed back in 1998 and completely demolished in 2015. The former patient records are kept in one of those warehouses from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and no one knows what box they're in. Fortunately, this is where Mark's chance meeting with Professor Alex Seville came in handy again. Right, so my wife's grandmother was a reporter for the, for the Star-Ledger. She and one of the state representatives were responsible for getting Marlboro closed down. Right, and they say that, well, it was because of the abuse and all that. But I don't, I don't know. It was Professor Seville's wife who reached out to State Senator Richard Cody's office, whose investigation into a spate of illegal activities at Marlboro Psychiatric led to its finally being shut down. They, in turn, found us someone who, as far as we know, is the only person in the world who knew both Caleb Carter and Charles Farmer, because Harvey Dare was an orderly at Marlboro Psychiatric for over 10 years, including the time when both men were institutionalized there. The ward that I was in was pretty calm, in the sense of there wasn't a lot of physical stuff going on. The ones that were really, really out of control, I didn't have much to do with them. You know, I was more like there to make sure that everybody was comfortable and they got what they needed. And uh, I was able to communicate with most of them. And that's basically where, that was the first time that I saw Caleb. He was in his early 20s already. I was a little bit older than him. You know, he was very helpful, not only to me, but to, but to the inmates. And, uh, you know, they liked him also. You know, I didn't know anything about him, really. I didn't have any background about him. But eventually, uh, we became friends. And that's how I was able to find out, you know, what was going on in his particular life. But it was, it was, it was interesting because he had already, you know, he cut his tongue out. So he couldn't speak. What happened is we used to go into a game room. You know, we started to play Scrabble. At first he tried to tell me, you know, he couldn't really write out sentences. You know, it was just very, very difficult for him. But over a period of time when we do the Scrabble, you know, he'd start to tell me a little bit about where he came from. And that's how I was able to get bits and pieces on, on what happened, you know, what led up to him killing Seth. He was off in the woods. There were rocks and they were built up almost like a pyramid. And next to it was some, 
some writing, and in one area there was a circle with a with an X in it. And uh, when he took the rocks away, and that's when he heard the name. And he eventually told me the reason why he decided to cut his tongue out uh, was because he was afraid that he would say the name that created what he did with his brother. He didn't want to repeat that again. So he felt that if he didn't have a tongue, that he wouldn't be able to 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 have this evil force come through to be able to mention that name. Because when that name was mentioned, that's when he killed Seth. And, you know, he chose to stay there. He didn't have to stay there. You know, when he was a child, he was he was he was committed and then he was given an opportunity to leave, but he was afraid to go out. In order to be safe and not to hurt anybody else, he needed to be inside. He had to be locked up. It was, uh, he scared me at times. Because is it real? It seemed real to me. If you want to know my feeling on it, uh, I, I believed him. I, I believed him. You know, and, uh, he was a gentle human being. So what happened to him... Uh, I don't know, eventually, uh, I know that five or ten years later, you know, he hung himself. Again, Alex Seville. Didn't a kid kill himself that was kind of associated with, with Caleb Carter when he was in? Yes. I think, I think somewhere in that there was, the, yes. somewhere in, in the stuff that I was digging out with, there, like, they couldn't attach it to him, but there was, like, this fear that somehow... He, he had been responsible for the death of, the, of a teenager or something. We have not been able to independently corroborate the rumor that Caleb Carter caused other inmates to kill themselves by convincing them to speak the name of a certain evil spirit. However, Marlboro Psychiatric was investigated by the state for a spate of 18 suicides that took place between the years 1949 and 1954, which directly coincides with the time between Caleb's admission to the children's wing and the day he cut off his own tongue at the age of 16. Rod's the one that told me about this particular story back in high school. Okay. Rod said he only met his uncle once when he was brought there in the late 70s, early 80s to see his uncle up in Marlboro right before they closed Marlboro and before he died. My mom waited till I was already, you know, 16 years old. And, um, you know, he wasn't doing well. And my mom wanted us, wanted me to know who he was. She didn't force me to go. I actually was in curious. I was intrigued by what it was. But when I got there, I was like, I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> you know, but I couldn't, you know, run back to the car or anything. So I just had to go through with it. And that was my first time being in a mental asylum or a place for people that are going through mental illness. And it, it just felt really sad. But at the same time, I felt like, like he needed to be there. And um, I was very scared of him, even though he wasn't like he didn't he didn't show me that he was somebody I should fear. But knowing what he had done kind of made me kind of a little angst, you know, while I was in his presence. He had a, he couldn't talk verbally, but, you know, the, the eyes, he was trying to warn me about something, um, you know, like he was, you know, like when he did it, it was just disturbing and unsettling and even just being here, just trying to remember it, 
it um, kind of just gives me goosebumps just talking about it because um, I know what fear looks like. And when I went to visit my uncle, I saw fear in his eyes. His hands were like almost clawed in a way, like it was very, it wasn't deformed, but it was almost like he couldn't straighten his fingers. You know, it was like, his, his, his almost like a, a arthritis meets somebody who had, you know, a brick, you know, hit on their hands a long time ago, like somebody whose hands were broken, but never healed correctly. You know, his hands were mangled, you know, twisted. Did he ever tell you if he broke it on his own or someone else? Well, he, but he broke his hands. He broke his, he broke his own hands. The really unnerving thing about this stuff is the broken hand thing, so that just gets to me. Because he broke his own fingers. Yeah, the fingers is a motif that yeah, we've discovered in all the murders. That's definitely the, the, the creepiest thing that we found out. Yeah. Because it's in, it's in Caleb. It's in Dave, uh, the, the, the whole flop heads things. I heard a loud crack, like he cracked a big knuckle. And he, he actually just broke his finger. I, it's just bizarre. I he broke his fingers. Did he broke you his own fingers. His fingers were like all twisted. And then it, if that wasn't bad enough, it's like, oh, he did that right in front of me. Like somebody's like with a smile on his face. Apparently Farmer took a hike, right. disappeared for a time, came back and had and badly injured himself. I forget if it was his hand or if it was his foot was like broken or something. He, he had injured himself like pretty badly. And after that night, he was a different person. I went by where he was, you know, his room, and he was slamming his hands against the wall. And I had to stop him from doing it. And you could actually see the bone coming out of his, of his knuckles. Even if they put, you know, foam on his hands or gloves, he would bite through it and he would try to get it off so that he could continue to like pound through, you know, pound his hands and, until they were mangled and broken. As we mentioned before, Harvey Dareff was still working at Marlboro Psychiatric when Charles Farmer was committed there for the murder of his wife, Barbara. And though they were in different wards, he, Farmer, and Caleb Carter shared one bizarre experience that still haunts Harvey to this day. So I only knew him for close to about a year, and I didn't know very, very much about him, except for the fact that, uh, you know, sometime during that year there was a there was a circus that came into town, and uh, and he and Caleb were together at the circus. And uh, I was watching them, and as I watched them, they caught me watching them, and they both had the same look in their eyes and the, and the same smile on their face, and it was I could I could still feel it like you know down my down my neck but they looked like they were one person. If there was an evil spirit that possessed both their bodies, you know, it certainly was there at that particular time. And I believe there are evil spirits. I do believe in evil. I don't know if it comes in different forms, but I do, we see in our society with mass murders and these shootings that are happening, evil does exist but I just don't know if it comes from a demonic possession or if it comes from something 
within here. It's almost like uh, if you believe that it's real, it's real. So you're saying that you think if somebody starts to be afraid that they're possessed, they then become possessed. Believe that they're possessed. Yes. Become possessed. Yes. How can you tell the difference between that versus somebody who actually is possessed? You can't. You can't. On the next episode of No Man's Land. Hi, you've reached 732. Please leave me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Hey, John. This is Allie, Will Schwartz's mom, your student, Will. When you get a minute, please give me a call back. We've got a, a bit of a situation going on here and I really need to speak with you. You know, Will's been home for the last couple of weeks because of coronavirus and um, it's actually in the hospital now, not because of coronavirus, but um, something actually crazy seemed to happen while he was doing some editing work on the podcast for you. He was going through some footage or tape about Pete something notebook, and he said this thing. I don't know what it was. Like, he was freaking out about it afterwards. He said something that said in the notebook or written in the notebook. I don't even know. After that happened, he, like, started to flip out, which is so unlike him, and he was talking about, like, breaking his hands or his fingers or something, and then for like three nights he did not sleep. And we had to take him to the RWJ Psych ER, and he's there now for observation. I don't know what you guys are working on. I don't know what you're doing, but um, this has got to stop. So I really need you to call me back as soon as you get this. My number is 917. Um, I know this is important to him. I know it's important to you, but like this is not okay. Please call me soon. Thanks. No Man's Land is recorded by Will Schwartz and produced by Will Schwartz, Mark Ramreka, and John Hume. Sound design and mix by Carmen Borgia. Original score by Kevin Wiggins. Our theme song is Inventions by Maserati. Special thanks to Professor Alex Seville, Amy Seville, Curtis Bynes, State Senator Richard Cody, Rod Dudley, and Harvey Derrick. Our featured song is Perfect Storm by the Stunk Cocks.